Thanks for being here with us this morning. Those of you who are here with us this morning uh, who've been with us for a few weeks know that this is the final Sunday in a series we've been going through, um, that we've been thinking together as a church about four different issues that um, where the teaching of the Bible is clear, and yet the prevailing winds of culture are kind of blowing against those truths. Now, uh, it's not our normal practice to just choose controversial topics and speak on them. In fact, uh, my, my preference as a pastor is to, to keep my own opinion, my own thoughts out of things. And, and, and one of the ways I do that is I regularly just preach through books of the Bible. So uh, over the summer, I'm going to be preaching through several different psalms and just taking a psalm and going through it. And uh, in August, one of our other pastors is going to preach through the book of Jude. And then in the fall, we're going to start preaching through the book of Matthew. So that's how we do things as a church. But the reason we decided to take these four weeks and focus on these four topics is because tonight as a church, we're voting on whether to establish these as positions of our church whereby somebody would, uh, who would be wanting to be an elder or in a teaching role within our church would need to be able to affirm these things. We're not defining it so that everyone who, uh, who wants to be a member of our church, who's going to attend here, needs to hold to these things, but just for those who are going to be in elders or teaching roles. But because some of these topics have come under fire in, in culture, the elders asked me to take some time to just go through what the Bible says about each of these topics. And so that's what we're doing, and, and we're dealing with the last one uh, today. And uh, as much as I think this has been a good thing for our church, I'll, I'll just be honest, I'm, I'm anxious to get back into just digging into a passage of Scripture and unfolding it to you, though I think God has used this for good in the life of our church. I want to say one thing about the meeting tonight, too. Uh, as elders, our posture really is, uh, we're taking this idea that God's laid on our hearts. There's, there's unanimity within the, the elders. And, and uh, these issues that God has put on our heart, we wanted to bring to the congregation. But we're, we don't have an attitude of we're railroading this through or this needs to be done right now. So we're very open to whatever God has in the meeting tonight. And we're trusting that as each member has prayerfully looked to God's word and studied what God has, has to say and has looked at these various positions and emotions that God will lead our church tonight and we're trusting of whatever the outcome is. So don't feel any uh, pressure from the elders or anything like that. Whatever comes tonight, the elders will receive and we'll be happy to move forward as a, as a united church. All right, well, with that in mind, I'd like to take, uh, invite you to take your Bibles and open them to Galatians chapter 5. If you're using the Bible in the rack in front of you, the pew rack in front of you, it's on page, we'll be reading from, uh, on page 975. Page, page 975, Galatians chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. Again, one of the things we believe is it's much more important to hear God's voice than to hear the pastor's voice. And so one of the ways we show that, I don't make you stand through my sermon, but we do stand for the reading of God's word. So would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, 
impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. All right, you can be seated as we pray. Father, this morning we have the topic before us of human sexuality. And this is a topic where uh, there is much, uh, much confusion in our society and culture today, and sometimes even our own thinking and our own hearts. We don't want to be the final judge or arbiter of what's right or wrong. We don't want to be the judge. We want to look to you, and we want you to teach us today. So I pray that my words would be faithful to your word so that your spirit can work in us and even through me by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. If they tell, the, if they tell you that you can't, you can shove it in their face. I can. I can. I can. I can. So go the lyrics of a popular song that is gracing our airwaves today. The clean version of the song has a refrain that says, forget that, I can do anything. Now compare that to the lyrics of another popular song on the radio today. This is a song by Mary Lambert called Same Love, which describes her lesbian inclinations. She sings, I can't change, even if I tried, even if I wanted to. If they tell you that you can't, you can shove it in their face. I can, I can, I can. Forget that I can do anything. I can't change, even if I tried, even if I wanted to. At face value, there, there's a contradiction, right? But here's the thing. These two songs are actually saying the same thing. Both songs are affirming that there are desires deep within us, natural to us, or, or part of who we are as people, that others may frown on. But even though they frown on these things, we should pursue these desires. To reject these desires, according to the modern sage, is the height of blasphemy. You hear in the news about uh, blasphemy laws in certain countries, right? You kind of cringe. There's an unwritten blasphemy law here. Do not desire, desire, uh, deny those desires. So these songs and the thoughts with that present one 
one way of looking at the world, albeit a predominant, the, the predominant way that the Western world now thinks about things. And this way of looking at the world began its stratospheric rise in the 1960s and the 1970s. Now, I'm not a uh, sociologist or a philosopher, but I want to just lay out what I understand as kind of three of the basic premises of, of this way of looking at the world. The first premise is that as people at our core, we are basically good. We're basically good. The second premise is that we should follow our hearts. We should pursue our desires. It's a celebration of the individual. And the third premise is that we should commit ourselves to peace, love, and tolerance in our interactions with our fellow man. Now this third premise functions at one level as kind of a, a, a balance to the first two. So how do we know if, if our desires maybe are out of line? Well, if they would hurt somebody or, or if they wouldn't be out of love, then you shouldn't do them. But they also are an affirmation of how we are going to bring about good in this world. How are we going to solve the problems of this world? And ultimately the solution is to look into my own heart and find the love in my own heart and the acceptance of others as good people and move forward in a spirit of unity. Now these three premises are actually closely linked together. So why is it that I'm to follow my heart and pursue my desires? It's because at my core I'm fundamentally good. And especially if those desires are somehow in one way or another connected to my expression of love. And that's why in the sexual arena, especially in the 60s and 70s and then flowering into the situation today, the free expression, the free sexual expression in any way we want is part and parcel with this way of looking at the world. So if I were to summarize this way of looking at the world, it would say, the problems with the world are out there. And the solution to what's wrong with the world is in here. So the locus of the basic problems are out there. And the solutions are in here. So what's wrong with the world? The, what's wrong with these world are, are this construct of, of social mores and strictures that are telling us that what is in our hearts is wrong and stifling the human spirit. And those kind of things need to be rebelled against and thrown off and mocked because they're part of what is the problem with the world. For example, the social mores of the day say, not anymore, but at one time, say that sexual expression is reserved for a man and a woman within the context of marriage. But if, but if I have desires for those things, and they're rooted in, in a love for another person, and we both feel that, who cares what the structural mores say? It's oppressive and wrong. We should be expressing those things together and have freedom to do that. Now watch how this develops. 
in this way of looking at the world, right? So our, our desires are good. And therefore, they ought not be changed. In fact, they cannot be changed. It's, it's like the color of your skin. No different. And therefore, if it's like the color of your skin, anybody who's telling me I shouldn't be following my desires has become hateful and intolerant. We have now a civil rights issue on our hands because these desires are part of who I am. And to deny that, to deny that is bigoted and hateful. In fact, it's even been taken this far, this paradigm, this way of looking at the world, it's been taken this far. If I have deep desires that are contrary to my biological design, then, as a society, we condone actually changing our biological design before we would change or attempt to change someone's desires. That's how far this goes. In fact, in the United States, on the cover of Time magazine just a couple of weeks ago was a transgendered person talking about the new, the new civil rights with transgendered people. Now, I would ask of this worldview, how, how far do we take this, right? So let's say somebody has a desire for hoarding things. They just deeply like to collect things and everything they see, every knickknack they want to have and they feel like it's, they've found the bargain. They want to fill their house with these things and then fill every space. It's a desire they innately have. Do we just say, okay, we embrace that. That's who you are. And for anyone to speak against that would be bigoted. Or maybe somebody who is born with an insatiable appetite. Food is so compelling to them that they cannot stop eating it. And so they become more and more obese to the point where they can barely move. Is there ever a point to tell that person that those desires might actually not be healthy desires? Well, today, in this paradigm, there seems to be some sort of exception. If it's not for your personal well-being, then we can, you know, if it's not good for you, then we would speak into that. But how do we decide what's good for you? How do we decide this is a healthy activity and this isn't? It becomes very hairy as I think about it. But the Bible presents an altogether different way of looking at the world. This shouldn't surprise us, right? Jesus, when you read through the Gospels, he takes the way the world works and he just turns it on its head. There's an entirely different way of doing things. And Christianity has been countercultural since the day it was founded. And except for a little blip in the Dark Ages when it was at its least healthy, it has always been countercultural. So let's look again at Galatians 5. If you closed your Bibles, open them back up. Again, it's on page 975, Galatians 5, verses 16 through 24. I already read it, so I'm not going to read through it again. But what I want to draw out are three premises of the way the Bible looks at the world. 
you're looking at the worldview of the Bible, what are the three premises behind that? These aren't the only three premises, and you know, we can get into worldview and ideology discussions, but I'm just drawing out three premises from this passage that are connected with the wider themes of Scripture. The first premise, at our core, we are basically broken. At our core, as people, we are basically broken. So when you read through this, it talks about these two competing desires, right? You remember, there's, uh, but I say walk by the Spirit, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And then verse 17, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit against the flesh, they're opposed to each other. So there's these two different desires. One is of the Spirit, and that's talking about the Spirit of God, something outside of us that, of course, by God's grace can come inside of us, but it's not native to who we are. And then there is our flesh which is native to who we are. It is our natural inclination. It's how we're wired from birth, our flesh. And look how it describes the flesh. They're wrong desires. They're flawed desires. It is from the flesh that come what? Look at verses 19, 20, and 21. Things like enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and on and on, right? These, these corrupt desires that come from our flesh. So at our core, we are basically broken people. We are born with a flesh that actually craves sinful things. Now, as the Bible talks about this, just to, just to be clear, the Bible doesn't say that means all of us are as bad as we could possibly be or that there's never any good in any of us or things like that. Don't take it too far, right? The Bible is clear that because of God's common grace upon all of us, because of a variety of things, that we can be noble, we can do noble and heroic things, we can do things that are sacrificial, etc., even with this flesh. But, yet, it says, at our core, we're broken. Just like with the first worldview, they say you're basically good. They're not saying that you never do bad things. But at your core, you're basically good. Here, the Bible is saying, at our core, we're basically broken. In other words, the locus of the problem with the world is in here. That's what the Bible says. Second premise. Christ can overcome that basic brokenness. So you see, the fruit of this flesh, sexual immorality, impurity, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, verse 21 I'm picking up, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm broken and therefore I have no right being part of God's good kingdom. And yet earlier it's talking about the spirit. God's spirit. That can come into me and actually begin to wage war against these desires. And produce fruit in me like love and peace and kindness and goodness and self-control. Well, as the rest of Galatians and indeed the rest of the Bible explain, this spirit comes into me when I acknowledge my brokenness before God and I look to Jesus and the Bible talks about how Jesus 
when he died on the cross, you know, the central teaching of the Christian religion, Jesus died on the cross for our sins. He took the penalty of our sins upon himself. He bore the wrath that God had poured out on mankind upon himself. And then he went into the grave and he conquered death that came with sin. And so he actually fundamentally changed the, the character of the universe so that my own sinful heart, as I put faith in Christ, can be transformed. The, the prophets talked about kind of taking a heart of stone and putting in a heart of flesh. So that God's rules are not written as these exterior things, but they're actually written inside me, and I desire God's ways, and I'm forgiven, and his spirit indwells me. I become a, a temple, so to speak, reflecting God and him at work within me. Christ can transform my brokenness into something good and noble and right as I humbly accept his work by faith. So, if the locus of the problem isn't here, the solution's out there, and particularly, our solution is in a Savior, Jesus Christ, who comes, and by his Spirit we can be transformed. The third premise that I think it's important for us to understand from this passage is that even after that after that transformation the battle rages on or in a sense that's when the battle actually begins now the spirit's in there and he can start doing something about this flesh of ours this flesh of mine so again in verses 16 through 18 we saw these two the spirit and the flesh are actually battling with each other you know so the idea of Christianity isn't okay I embrace Jesus and poof all my bad desires fly away like a butterfly, never to be seen again, and I walk a perfect life, never to sin again. That's not what Christianity teaches. It says now the war's on inside you. The Spirit's going to win. We know that, but yet there's a battle that we experience. In fact, look at the language of verse 24. I love this. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The flesh has been crucified. Why does he say crucified? Why doesn't he say put to death? Or killed. Well, part of it is an echo to the fact that the reason we can do this is because of what Jesus did on the cross. But I think there's more going on here. You see, in the history of humanity, one of the, the slowest ways to kill somebody is crucifixion. Because as they hang on that cross, they can pull themselves up and gasp for air, and they will, and they keep doing that and doing that. Sometimes they can live, even for days, hanging on this cross. Now, the fact that they're crucified guarantees they're dead. Right? It's as good. Once you're hanging on that cross, you're dead. And yet, still gasping for life, gasping for breath. And that's how it is for us who've embraced Christ, received that heart transplant, and been indwelt by His Spirit. Our flesh has been crucified. It's a done deal. We are ultimately going to be completely glorified in heaven with none of those sinful desires. And we look forward to that day. But in this day, it's still gasping for breath. It's still clinging to life, even though it has been crucified and died. And that's why the call after that is live by the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Because there's this battle raging on. 
So that is the way the Bible looks at the world, right? So it's very different. So in the first way of looking at the world, the locus of the problem is out there, and the solution is in me. And the way the Bible puts it forward turns that completely on its head and says, actually, the locus of the problem is in here, in my heart, in my flesh. And the solution is outside of me in a Savior that God sends. So let me just tease out three of the crucial differences between these two ways of looking at the world, just so that can be clear in our mind. The first is the question, how do we know which of our desires are good and which ones are bad? Both groups will, will agree that there are certain desires that are good and there are certain desires that are bad. So how do we sort through those things? Well, in the first way of looking at the world, there's a basic assumption that that our desires that are native, that are natural to us, that are most tied to who we are, are good. And then there's this kind of arbitrary, from my perspective, arbitrary rule brought in that, but it can't violate love and respect and peace toward your fellow man. Well, who decided that was going to be the rule? Machiavelli might not agree. The man who shooted some people uh, over in New Brunswick might not agree. Shooted? That's not how you say it. Shot. a serious matter and these issues how, how do we know how do we know what's a good desire and what's a right desire and even as I gave some of those examples before about obesity or, or hoarding maybe it becomes a little hairy but for the second way of looking at things I don't become and we as people don't become the ones who decide by majority vote what is right and what's wrong we look to an objective standard that has been in place for 2,000 years, 5,000 years, 4,000, however you want to date that, that God has laid down in his word that one who's in authority over us is the one who tells us which desires are right and wrong. Second difference, why should we love other people? They answer this question very differently. The first way of looking at the world says, I should love other people because they're inherently good and because I have an inherent goodness in, inside of me that allows me to do that. So look into your heart and find love for your fellow man who's lovely is kind of the idea. Whereas the Bible's worldview says, we love other people because they are created by God in his image and invested with a soul as eternal beings that are precious in God's sight. And so we love them. We love them even when they sin because we, in our own hearts, actually can't love purely and perfectly. And those of us who've tried to love in our flesh know this, don't we? We can't love the way we say we should. But, the Bible talks about God's love for us as sinners. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He loved us even when we were his enemies. And so that actually changes our hearts so we can love people even though they sin. Different answers of how we love and different realities for how that love can happen. And then the last difference, why should we tolerate other people? So tolerance is a virtue in both 
Why should we tolerate other people? The first view says we tolerate people because their desires are right desires. They might be different than mine, but we celebrate the individual, let what they desire and what they want be who they are, and we tolerate because it's all good. But in the Christian worldview, the biblical worldview, presents an entirely different picture of why we tolerate people. We tolerate people, and we tolerate the differences amongst us. It's probably the tolerate people is kind of the connotation, oh, I'm going to tolerate you. We love people, and we tolerate our differences, right? In the biblical worldview, why do we tolerate our differences? It's because we're all in the same boat as sinners. So we don't hold ourselves up and be like, oh, you're this bad person over here and you have sinful desires. So, no, we understand that's who we were and that's who we are apart from Christ. Just look with me. I love this passage. It's in Titus. It's just a little bit ahead. It's on page, uh, what do I have? I have it here, 998. Titus chapter 3. Listen to how the Bible describes how Christians should be interacting with the world and kind of this view of love and tolerance and then the reason for it. Titus 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Is that not a beautiful definition of tolerance? I don't think anybody could give a better definition. And then it says, for, why are we to act this way? For, we're all in the same boat. For, it says, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Do you see these differences? One, again, the problems out there, anybody telling people what they should be doing with their own personal desires and wants, and the solution is in here, I need to be, I'm good, and therefore if we all just band together in love and allow the goodness in our hearts to win, we can prevail. And the other that says, I'm broken inside in my heart, at my core I'm broken, and I need a savior who can come and clean this mess up and make me whole. And even though I continue to battle against different sinful desires, I love people and I embrace people and I move forward with the goodness of God's kingdom. Now, I spend a lot of time on these two different ways of working, looking at the world because they form the foundation of how we think about human, human sexuality more broadly and particular. Uh, as I'm going to speak in a few, for the next few minutes on the issue of homosexuality. So you know where this is going, right? You've already been thinking about this. In the first, in the first way of looking at the world, if a, 
desires are in me that are contrary to God's plan, whether they be, you know, uh, desire for sex outside of marriage, desire to have many partners, uh, a desire to have uh, sexual relations with somebody who's of the same sex as you, these types of things, if those are native to you, if they're part of who you are, and especially if you view them as a, an a way that you can express love, then they are inherently good and to be embraced. Right? And anyone who is to speak against them is hateful and hurtful and bigoted. And the second way of view viewing things, God has designed sex as a good thing. And as the creator of the universe, he has told us the context in which it is most beautifully and perfectly expressed, which is in the context of marriage between a man and a woman. We see that in the first opening two chapters of Genesis. And so anything contrary to that is an unnatural desire that is not pleasing to God and is therefore sin. And make no mistake, on the issue of homosexuality, the Bible is clear that it is a sin. I already mentioned that God, when he designed marriage, he did it as between a man and a woman. We see that in the truths of scripture. We even see it in the biology of how he made them. Then you go to God's commands, his clear teaching in the Old Testament in both Leviticus 18.22 and Leviticus 20.13. He very clearly expresses that for a man to lie with a man as he would with a woman is an abomination. Now, it's true that there are many laws in the Old Testament. And the New Testament shows us how to read some of those laws. So, for instance, some of those laws find their fulfillment in Christ. They were kind of signposts pointing to Christ. So like the sacrificial system. There's lots of laws about the sacrificial system. But Jesus is the ultimate lamb. Or, or there are certain laws that, that were meant for the actual nation, the sovereign nation of Israel that was under God's rule at that time, that with the coming of Christ and the opening of God's kingdom, not to a, a, uh, a nation, but to a whole people who embraced Christ, things changed. So like the dietary laws are explicitly addressed. That was something unique for that time. But as a whole, there's two basic ways of understanding which of these laws in the Old Testament are ones that are binding for us today, that God actually intended not just for ethnic Israel at that time, but for all time. There's two different ways Christians have thought about that. One is to say, if the New Testament doesn't comment on it, we assume that it's still relevant for today. So unless the New Testament says, no, 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 things have changed, we assume that it's still going on today. That's one basic way. The other basic way Christians have thought about this through history is to say only those laws that are explicitly affirmed in the New Testament are the ones we carry over to today. It's kind of the inverse of it, right? Under either category, these laws about homosexual relations still apply to us today. In fact, it's interesting. When Paul talks about homosexuality, in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, and in 1 Timothy 1, 10, 
Those are two, two of the places he explicitly addresses it. He actually makes a word for homosexuality that is quoting Leviticus 18.22 and 20.13. So in the Greek translation, that was Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew, but there's a Greek translation called the, called the Septuagint that was commonly used in Paul's day. And there's two words, one for man and one for basically sleep with. And in one of the verses, they're like three words apart, and the other ones are right next to each other. And Paul takes those two words, puts them together, or keeps them together, and calls that homosexuality. Man-betting, you could translate it. And that's the word Paul chooses to use when saying it's an abomination, or that, that it's not appropriate for people who are of the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 1 Timothy 1, 10. So he's clearly affirming the Old Testament teaching as relevant for us today. Now, when you look through the list in 1 Timothy 1, 10 or 1 Corinthians 6, 9, you realize homosexuality is a sin just like all the other sins. It's not like this you know, this one thing that the boogeyman over here and then all the other sins are kind of okay and we wink at, right? We're all alike sinners. Just because one person has certain kinds of desires that are unhealthy doesn't make them better or worse than somebody else who has different kinds of sinful desires and passions. But there are certain ways in which the Bible talks about homosexuality as unique. So this is the last place I'm going to have you turn, but turn to Romans chapter 1. This is on page 939. Romans chapter 1. All right. Romans chapter 1, I'm going to pick up at verse 18. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That's a mouthful. What's it saying? It doesn't say the wrath of God is coming against. It says is revealed. So there's an active way that God's wrath is revealed today amongst people who are suppressing truth about God. They're looking at truth, and as the, the passage will, they'll go on to explain, where if you just look out in the world, you can see that this is how God's doing things, that there is a God and he has a certain order, but they're suppressing and they're denying those things. There's an anti-God mentality. For people like that, God actually reveals his wrath. And this is how he does it. Look at verse 24. Therefore, how is his wrath revealed? Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who's blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for other men, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So, homosexuality is a unique sin in that when a society as a whole 
tends to be turning its back on God and rejecting God. As an aspect of his judgment, it is something that he gives people over to these unnatural desires within them, and you will see an increase in these types of sins, right? So it's an, it's an evidence that a society is turning its back on God, and it's an aspect of God's judgment upon that society. So in that way, it's unique. It's also unique in that it is, at its core, uh, every sin is an act of rebellion against God. But in a certain way, homosexuality is even more so. Because if you look at how do we know how God has designed things, well, you look at biology, both our anatomy, but also how the species is propagated. And God has been very clear in those things, how he's intended things to work. And so to take those things and rebel against them is, is an affront to God's design. It's a rebellion against God's design for how things are. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who has homosexual desires, who practices homosexuality, is uh, cognitively doing these things in his mind, saying, okay, God designed it this way, and I'm rebelling against him. I'm just saying, if you think kind of as a step removed about the sin, it is unique in that way. And I'd say it's also unique just in today's culture because there are a few sins in today's culture where somebody is saying, I'm going to define myself by that sin. So uh, I might struggle with pride. I do. Um, I, don't, I don't go around saying, I'm proud. I'm proud. And for you to deny me being proud, is, you know, that's not my identity. Right? So it is a unique sin. But it's also a sin like all the rest. And it's important that we see that our sinful desires and somebody else's sinful desires might be different. It doesn't make us better than them or them better than us. Unfortunately, saying homosexuality is a sin is where too many Christians have stopped. Homosexuality is a sin, period, end. No more discussion, no more thinking biblically about this topic, which is why I wanted to go to Galatians and spend some time in Galatians and the worldview presented there. Now, building on that work that we did in Galatians, I just want to kind of give a picture of what I think the church is, what we as a community of believers should be. Think of ourselves as a, as a group of people who all have a common diagnosis, a cancer that if it runs its course is fatal. And yet, there is a cure for this cancer. So again, there's a problem in me, there's a cancer at work within me that's killing me, and there's a cure outside of me. Can you cure my cancer? So we all come together as a group of people who all have this common sickness, this common disease that needs a cure. And we all are rejoicing that there is a cure and high-fiving one another and hugging each other because we're not going to die from this. And yet there is, a, there is a regimen we have to go through, right? We have to take 
the chemo and the radiation and then the effects that it has on our body can be discouraging. It can be hard. It can be hard going through those things. So we need other people who are going through those things with us saying, keep at it. Keep at it. You're going to get to the other side. It's okay. Yes, this is hard, but there is hope, right? We need that. In fact, one person described the church as one beggar telling another beggar where to find food. That's our heart as a church. Right? So whether you're struggling with same-sex attraction or whether you're struggling with pride or whether you're struggling with being controlling or struggling with, uh, with wanting to control, your bo- or control how your body looks to draw other people to yourself, whatever it is, whatever you're struggling with, it's okay. We all know we got cancer, right? We don't need to be a place where we, we, uh, we all sin, but... Uh, or or we, we understand we're all sinners, but none of us sin, right? No, we're people who actually are broken sinners. So there's an environment together where, where we're one beggar helping another beggar find food. Continue this analogy. Let's say there's somebody in our midst then who's walking around saying, oh, you have cancer? I've been healthy my whole life. I've never had to deal with anything like that. I can't believe what... What did you do to get cancer? Oh, It wouldn't be a real healthy person to have in our community, right? That's not the kind of people we would, we would want to be. Somebody said, the church is a hospital for sinners, not a museum for saints. If you show up here to have everyone look at you and how great you are, you're missing the point. This is a place where all of us, no matter what our struggle is, can find acceptance, can find a community, and can find a community of people who are helping us to look to the hope where these desires can be transformed by Christ, and we can be made new. On the flip side, we also wouldn't want somebody who's standing here saying, oh, I got cancer and I'm going to die from it. I love the cancer, and, and I hope you all die from it too. Cancer is wonderful. You know, that's, that'd be weird too, right? We're not just going to wallow in our brokenness. Hey, I'm a horrible sinner. Isn't it great I'm a horrible sinner? I'm going to keep on sinning. Or conversely, someone who has that same cancer and saying, yeah, tumor growing in me, it's probably not cancer. It's probably just, you know, a mouse running around inside me or something like that. You know, it's fine. That wouldn't be healthy. We have to deal in reality with what's going on. So uh, there was a church in Texas that I came to respect quite a bit. And this is one of the slogans that they would constantly use. And it was this, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Right? I think that nails it. We don't come here, we're not a group of people who all got it right. It's okay not to be okay. We should be able to talk about that here. We should be able to embrace that with one another. But... We don't wallow there. We don't stay there. We allow the transforming work of the gospel and his spirit to work in us so that from one degree to another we're being transformed into Christ's image. That's the picture that the Bible gives. See, it's not just crossing arms and saying, homosexuality is a sin and it's bad. It's saying, we all are born with sinful desires. We all have cancer within us. Mine, the way that shows itself in me might be different than how it shows itself in you. 
I'm no better than you. We're all like beggars. We're all like sinners looking to Jesus. And he actually can transform us and free us. He's done that for me. I'm anxious to see him do that for you. Yes, the battle continues to rage. It doesn't mean, okay, now I become a Christian, and now those same-sex attractions, poof, they're gone, float away like butterflies. No, you'll still struggle with that, just like I continue to struggle with pride. But by his spirit and through a community of believers and through his word and through his gospel, I'm actually growing in that, and God is working in me, and I can live a God-honoring life and not always be giving in to those desires. That's the picture the Bible paints, totally different. A very welcome, embracing place, right? Where we're still clear about God's word. So let me just deal with a few practical matters real quick at the end. What if you're here this morning and you're a Christian and you're struggling with same-sex attraction? And there's probably people here who that's true of. First, I want to say to you, don't be afraid and don't be ashamed. There are a lot of beautiful Christians who fight against those same desires. One of the books, and, and I'm going to, I got this from the church library. Uh, it's a great book. Uh, and it's short. It's easy to read. I'd encourage everyone to get your hands on this book. Library is going to be in hot demand, but you can also buy them for your own. But it's called Is God Anti-Gay? And it's written by Sam Albury, who deals with same-sex attraction. And there's been several books published recently. Uh, another one by a guy named Wesley Hill, uh, who's a beautiful Christian believer who deals with same-sex attraction. There's a pastor uh, who, whose books have helped me a lot named Vaughn Roberts, deals with same-sex attraction. There's a uh, spoken word artist named Jackie Hill who's dealt with same-sex attraction, you're not alone. Your sin isn't worse than mine or anyone else's. I want you to know that. And I also want you to know that we as a church love you. We're all broken people. All right? I struggle against sin. You're going to have different struggles than me. But we love you. And in a certain sense, You're not, you're not kind of this bad thing over here. Yeah, we're all bad. We all have the cancer. So I'm not trying to say those attractions are right or good. But your struggle with that doesn't make you any different than the rest of us who are struggling with other things. And the last thing I want to say is we're here to help you. I have people coming to my office every day with a variety of different needs that they're struggling with. And we're here to help you. So come talk to, talk to a pastor or if there's a Christian here that you know better or feel more comfortable talking with, talk to us. Don't try and deal with it on your own. It, it just Anytime we try and deal with these kind of struggles on our own, it can be really damaging. A few other practical considerations. Most of my, uh, he actually, Sam goes through in this book a lot of these questions as well. And so most of what I'm saying is just taken right out of this book and it's fantastic. But, uh, what do, you, what do you do if a Christian comes to you and opens up about his same-sex attraction? Maybe it's your child or your grandchild. What do you do? One of the paradigms here is keep in mind that it's like any other sin. What would you do if your son came to you who's dating a girl and said, I'm really tempted to sleep with her and we're, we're uh, 
you know, we're fighting that temptation. Well, you'd be glad that they came and talked to you about it, wouldn't you? You wouldn't freak out on them. You'd thank them for being willing to share that with you. You'd assure them that even though they've shared that personal bit with you, that you love them and you still embrace them. And then, if they're a Christian, you're going to come alongside them and give them the tools and the support they need in their battle against that temptation. What do you do if a non-Christian in the workplace or in your neighborhood or a, a long-time family friend reveals to you that they're gay? Again, how would you act if somebody came to you and said, I'm sleeping with my girlfriend, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend? You, you don't need to start saying, okay, now I can have nothing to do with you, right? Again, thank them for being willing to entrust you a bit of personal information. Assure them that it's not going to change your friendship with them. Continue to, to, to live out loving, a loving witness to the gospel to them. Just like Titus 3 talks about, right? Go back and review that. And be prepared as you, you know, you're, you're keeping the gospel central with them, right? That's, that's what you want to exhibit in your life. That's what you want to be talking about. Our own battle with sin and how Christ is redeeming us. But be prepared and have the tools when the conversation comes up to be able to talk in a gracious but clear way about what the Bible does say about homosexuality. And again, that book would be a great tool in that. And lastly, what do we do when a gay couple walks into our church holding hands, sits down in the pew, have their arms around one another? How are we as a church going to react? Again, this basic paradigm, right? What if a couple was in this church and at some point along the line we learned that they're cohabitating? They're living together, but they're not married. We wouldn't treat it any differently. So this church will be a loving, welcoming place where we care for them and we show what it's like to be God's family to these people. We continue to teach the Bible faithfully not backing down from anything that it says, and holding the gospel out. And then when the opportunity is there, when a conversation comes up, we're prepared, again, to talk about what the Bible says clearly and in a winsome way. I started out by quoting those song lyrics, right? A certain sense they're true. I can do anything, well, almost anything, one thing I can't do. I can't change my nature. So I either have to say my nature is good and I embrace it or I see the brokenness of my own nature. I have. I stand up here as a pastor because not because I have it all right but because I've seen that my own flesh my own ways are broken. I can't change, even if I tried. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that because of his blood, he can come in by his spirit and change me and make me into a new man who's increasingly conformed to his image. 
that is the good news of the gospel. And that is what will be the hallmark of this church by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're in the business of saving sinners. We all alike are in the same boat, beggars, spiritual beggars. But by your grace, you have loved us, you've cleansed us, you've poured out your spirit upon us, and you're transforming us. And we praise your name for that. And I pray, and we unite our prayers together and ask, Lord, may this be a church where that full orb, that whole picture of the gospel, that cancer ward picture of the gospel, is 